With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. Yo, there are many events coming up in the world of sports. It'd be great to be in attendance for such. Where can we get tickets? SeatGeek. You see, SeatGeek is an app that can help you find the best seats with the best deals. SeatGeek shows you different tickets available with green being the best deals and red not being the hot deals. The best part is it shows you where you'll be sitting at the event. If you use the code SPORTSMECCA, you could get $20 off your first purchase. Get your seat at SeatGeek today. Could it be you calling me down, 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 down? That foolish heart turns out the star. All that I am is all that you see. Welcome to another episode of the Sports Mecca Podcast. I'm your host, Stephen Abramo. As always, I'm joined by my partner, Sam Hengeli. Today, we have the opportunity to speak with former 10-year Major League Baseball player and current wealth advisor and co-founder of JL Strategic Wealth, Jacob Turner. Jacob, thanks for coming on today. We appreciate the time. Yeah, excited to be here. Excited to have this conversation with you guys. Very excited to have you on. Several topics we'll be discussing with you today. Um, but just to start, you know, as I mentioned in this intro, you did have a 10-year Major League Baseball career from 2009 to 2019. Just to start, you know, what was really your experience like playing in the Major Leagues and what really made you fascinated about playing that sport and taking that sport to the next level? Yeah, I mean, I always... I, you know, I grew up with two brothers, so we always had that competition internally and baseball was something that my parents always encouraged us to do um, and just had a passion for it. And obviously, like any kid dreamed of professional baseball as a potential opportunity, but never really thought that, you know, that might come to fruition, but obviously was blessed to be able to play in the big leagues for quite a bit of time. And obviously really enjoyed the experience, enjoyed a lot of the teammates that I played with and a lot of the uh, things that I got to experience throughout the, the time. Yeah, for sure. So you grew up, you know, in the St. Louis, Missouri area, you got drafted your first team by the Tigers in 2009. What was your experience like, you know, getting drafted and, you know, what was that, you know, also experience just getting offers from maybe different organizations? You know, did you ever have that, slew of baseball scouts and major league baseball teams watching you? Yeah. I mean, the draft process is, is kind of unique. Obviously the NFL drafts coming up. So I definitely have a, a special place in my heart for guys when they're on draft day, because there's a huge range of emotions. Obviously it's super exciting when you get drafted, but leading up to it can be kind of stressful just going through the whole process of obviously you want to perform on the field first but then after that, a lot of those other items are outside of your control. So, you know, I can still remember the day I got drafted and giving my dad a hug and just being excited to celebrate with my family, but definitely a really cool moment. You, you were able to develop into 
a pitcher and that's where you were able to to do for your 10 years in the minors and, and, and at the major league level. Yeah. I mean, I, you know, growing up, growing up, I was, uh, you know, pitching and hitting, but I think I was definitely more blessed pitching wise. Um, and I always joke that I'm probably not athletic enough to play shortstop. So pitching was more of a natural fit for me anyways, but no, just enjoy. I mean, I enjoy the aspect of pitching. You're kind of in control of the game. You're in control of the pace of the game. It, everything's kind of revolving around you throwing the ball. So definitely gravitated towards that. What would you say when you made that move from high school and you got drafted to the Detroit Tigers system? What was the biggest adjustment that you feel that you had to make that that big leap? Yeah, I think the biggest adjustment for guys isn't so much anything on the field as it is off the field. So when you think about the concept of going as like an 18 year old kid, so going from graduating high school to playing against professional athletes and just all the things that are on your time and, you know, you're going from playing a game that you enjoy in high school to, you know, it's certainly still enjoyable at the professional level, but it's much more of a job. So I think those adjustments just mentally are, are probably the biggest thing guys face. You know, there's been a lot of talk about the inequity and imbalance of, of minor league baseball. They've come out of the lockout and there will be a, a major league baseball season, but you know, there's been talks about the players in the minor league system being getting paid, you know, below minimum wage. And, and there's been a lot of minor leaguers that have only been paid as part-time workers did you ever experience these types of, you know, inequities or shortcomings when you were going up in the minor league system? Or do you kind of remember teammates that experienced that? Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, unfortunately, the minor league system is not built to support players. Um, it is built to support the teams. And what I mean by that is obviously, like you mentioned, Stephen, the pay for guys is very low. So I was fortunate to be a high pick. Um, I signed for a lot of money. So I'm not going to speak for myself in this situation. But when I think about the guys that my teammates and the, some of the living situations we were in, um, I can still remember we had five guys. And I think it was a two-bedroom, maybe a three-bedroom apartment in Lakeland, Florida. And, you know, everybody's just sleeping on air mattresses. For a lot of these guys, like, that's all that they could really afford when we're going through the season just to continue to live that dream. and potentially playing the big leagues one day. So I'm glad to see teams have been making strides in that, but it's certainly an element that is, I think, unique to probably just baseball. And I think about other minor league sports, I mean, I guess hockey is kind of similar, but, you know, football, there's not really a huge minor league system. Obviously the NBA, they have another team, but they're making some money doing it versus baseball. I mean, I played with guys that were making, you know, $1,500 a month for five months out of the year so. You do the math on that and you're not making a ton of money and you're spending your entire offseason training for the next year. So you were drafted in the first round. What was the the slot amount that you were that you made as a first round pick compared to the guys who were picked maybe in the 30th round? Yeah, well, I mean, the, the MLB draft is extremely top heavy. So if you think about. Even today, I want to say the top 60 picks are signing for somewhere over one and a half million dollars. And then it really starts tearing down after that. But if you look at the top 10 picks might all sign for four million dollars or more. So, you know, the the tier that these guys are on is, is pretty drastic. And when you look at, let's say, a 10th round pick that might be a, a college senior, 
he might sign for $2,500 or $5,000, but he's really just signing for the opportunity. So there's certainly a wide range in terms of what guys sign for in the draft. Mm -hmm. Did you realize the just inequality of, of pay between the rounds? Like when you put your name in the draft or did you like learn about this a couple years into your career? Yeah, I think, you know, my agent did a good job educating me on kind of the process. My parents did a really good job educating me. I mean, going from high school to professional baseball is certainly a huge jump, like we talked about. And I had a great opportunity to go to North Carolina. So I wanted to make sure that it was a worthwhile opportunity for me. And ultimately it came down to, I felt like, you know, the Tigers, the team that I was drafted by made a commitment both financially and otherwise to, to give me the best opportunity to succeed. So in addition to the Tigers, you played with the Chicago Cubs, White Sox, Miami Marlins, and Washington Nationals. Talk a little bit about those other organizations of what it was like in their minor league and major league organizations. And, you know, talk about the, you know, how you were able to, you know, develop as a pitcher in those systems. You know, that's really a great question because I think a lot of people from the outside looking in think like every organization will be relatively the same. And I can assure you that they're not the same. That's not to say one is way better and one's way worse, but they're just different dynamics that come along with it. So, you know, we were talking a little college sports here at the beginning, but if you look at college sports programs that are successful, some of that just is the underlying coaches. It's the underlying training that's there. And it's really that same way with Major League Baseball, you know, experiencing the difference between Detroit versus Miami versus the Cubs was pretty drastically different. Uh, definitely enjoyed each aspect of the organizations, but they were all certainly unique. Your final professional baseball stint came in the KBO Korean Baseball League with the Kia Tigers. For Sam and I, we we really don't watch much of baseball that's overseas. It's not affiliated with the yeah. United States. Talk to us about what it was like playing in that season and how just different it is from playing Major League Baseball or baseball in the United States in general. Yeah, well, I'll tell you guys, as a, as I assume you guys are pretty big sports fans, I would encourage if you can ever go over to South Korea and watch, watch the KBO, it is an experience in and of itself. Um, it's much more similar to like soccer in Europe in terms of fans cheering and being engaged in the game. So it was certainly a unique experience. You know, I have a young kids, so I have my family over there. I think it gave us a lot of good just life experiences that you could never gain here in the United States. As mentioned before, your uh, career ended in uh, 2019. Uh, you decided to transition into a new career, which ended up becoming a wealth advisor. What does your job entail? Yeah. So what does my job entail? My job entails helping really athletes and entrepreneurs navigate a lot of the same financial hurdles that I experienced in my career. So we try to help folks that are on, I call it an accelerated financial arc, but they're making a lot of money in a really short period of time. So if you think about kind of an athlete's journey, right, they make this significant amount of money in maybe three, five, 10 years. But then after that, a lot of guys don't know what's next. So they're trying to navigate making potentially millions of dollars in a given year without knowing what their income's going to look like in the next year. You uh, co-founded uh, JL uh, Strategic Wealth. What, what year, when did you uh, found that company? Yeah, so my brother and I founded that company in the beginning of 2020. Um, 
Well, I'm sorry, at the beginning of 2021, actually, like COVID is all running together on me, but we, we found out at the beginning of 2021 and really, like I mentioned, the, the goal there has just been to focus on people that are experiencing a lot of the same complexities that I've experienced in my life and, and helping coach and walk through that process with them. So I want to get talk a little bit about professional athletes and uh, money. There was a stat, I remember 30 for 30 broke. It said like five, it said like 75% of athletes who retire from the NFL uh, go broke. Um, from your experience with, as an athlete and now being a wealth manager, uh, what are some of the uh, issues that professional athletes run into when it comes to uh, money management? And what are some of the strategies that you would give to people, not just professional athletes, but to us to uh, be able to manage our money better, better so we won't have like uh, financial issues in the future? Yeah, I think the biggest issue that, you know, anybody runs into is just lifestyle creep. It's just magnified on an athlete's life cycle because they're around folks that are maybe make if they might, maybe they're making a million dollars. But if Mike Trout's in your team and he's making $30 million, um, he can certainly afford things that you can't afford. And I think that lifestyle creep of seeing what other guys are buying can often lead to building a, out a lifestyle that's really not sustainable. So I always ask people to ask the question, what does it cost to be you? And what I mean by that is if you took your entire life and you you kind of packaged it up into one, what does it cost to live Steven's life for a year, to live Sam's life for a year? And really it's that same notion for everybody, whether you're an athlete or not, just figuring out what does it cost to be you? And is that a lifestyle that you want to keep living or is the lifestyle going to be bigger than that? Or is it going to be smaller than that? And really just starting at those basic building blocks before we go to anything else. Interesting. Uh, with your first uh, paycheck, did you did you immediately put that in a bank account and then like uh, most athletes do, or were you like Ricky Henderson? Did you like frame it? <laughs> Honestly, I wish for your guys' sake I had some great story about how I spent it all. Um, no, I didn't really do much with it. I remember when we when I got drafted, Stephen, you mentioned about draft night, but we went out and got ice cream. I think the biggest purchase I made was like a computer. I never really had a laptop, so I bought a laptop, but um, I'm not a huge stuff guy, so there wasn't anything massive that I bought when I first signed. But no, I didn't frame my check, Sam. I, I put it in the bank account like I was probably supposed to. Yeah, good. Very smart. Uh, I want to I kind of shift over a little bit to uh, a little bit more baseball related. Um, you're a pitcher. Uh, a lot of different, different pitches, whether it's a fastball, curveball, slider. I want to just talk a little bit about uh, breaking ball since that's like a really hard, hard, hard pitches to uh, master with, for uh, anybody at any level. Uh, what were what were some techniques and uh, drills that you're able to do to develop such a strong breaking pitches? Well, I think now, too, when you look at Major League Baseball and all the data that's out there, um, if you look at companies like Driveline, they've really revolutionized like how guys can start spinning breaking balls. So if you think about any pitch you're trying to throw, you're trying to spin it as fast as you can. And the faster you can spin it, the more break you're going to get on it. And the harder it is for the batter to pick it up. So really doing anything to make sure that you're spinning the ball, one, correctly. So if you're trying to spin a curveball, you're spinning it directly over the top. And then two, trying to understand how you can spin it faster. And a lot of those just come from repetition and practice. They haven't really determined yet what the, what the cause and effect is of trying to spin the ball faster without using maybe a sticky substance on your hand or something like that. 
Now, what, are, what are your thoughts on last year with the uh, sticky substance use? Did you notice that a lot of players were using it during your career? And did you ever like have a, a thought of doing it at one point? I'll just say that it's pretty common in baseball. The fact that they're, they're, they're now taking a harder look at it is fine. I think as long as it's level across the playing field, I think, frankly, it was probably pretty level across the playing field before they decided to ban it. So I don't know if it'll end up making a huge difference, but if they choose that that's how they want to go about it and they want to be even across the board, then I think that's fine as well. Last year, Max Scherzer was approached by this, by an umpire about the sticky substance and he took off his hat. He took off his pants. He took off his Jersey and he was just like complaining to the umpire. Like, what else do you want me to take off? Um, <laughs> if they had done that when you were playing, what do you think you would have said to them? Well, I, I saw that and Max is certainly a great guy and the ultimate competitor. So I can certainly understand him being in the moment and uh, being frustrated with that situation. But I think for pitchers, particularly, you know, you're so in the moment that the last thing that you really want to do is when you come off the field, be giving your hat and your glove and everything else to the umpire for him to check it. Um, and only, I can only imagine if you have a bad inning, if you really want the umpire to come over and then you're giving him all your stuff. But Again, if that's how Major League Baseball feels like it's the best way to even the playing field, then that's the rules you're going to have to live by. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. So, so you got so throughout your career, you got to play for uh, multiple organizations, but you got to play for uh, two organizations in the same city with Cubs and White Sox. What are some of the similarities besides uh, being in the city of Chicago, and what are the what were some of the differences besides being in the north side and the south side? Yeah, I mean, they're really different organizations. I mean, the Cubs obviously have a little bit more history with Wrigley Field and everything there. And the White Sox have more of kind of a grittier feel being on the south side. I think it's kind of reflected in the fan bases. You know, both of them have really good fan bases, but they're both very different in terms of the dynamics and the makeup of the fan base. You know, with, with the Cubs, it's a much more mellow fan base, I would say. And with the White Sox, it can be a bit rowdier. So, but again, both good organizations, just different elements that I think make them unique. Did you ever get to meet Jerry Reinsdorf, the uh, White Sox owner? Did you ever get to know him? I did, I've met him, but I do not know him personally, no. Obviously, he owns the Chicago Bulls as well and made me pop in my head. I kind of think about that. And I, I remember being in Chicago one time and we were in a Uber with the Uber driver and he was a Cubs fan, of course. And his claim was like white, white Sox fans were only White Sox fans because they just didn't like the Cubs. So they just wanted a team to like root that would be strongly be against the Cubs. That's what some of them claim. And then one of my professors at my school, I went to uh, grew up in uh, Chicago. He grew up on the South side. So that's how he became a White Sox fan. But Cubs, Cubs yeah. is more, I feel like more of a popular, like it's more like a nationwide team since the history and just like the mystique of Wrigley Field. They're kind of more of a national brand, more like in the Yankees brand. I feel like the White Sox are more like if you're from the South Side of Chicago, that's like the team you just roll with. Yeah, I would say I would say there's almost more loyalty to the White Sox because like you said, Sam, if you're from the South Side, you're a White Sox fan versus the Cubs. Like you mentioned, kind of that national brand so they can kind of get the bandwagon fans that jump on board. Yeah. 
So Yogi Berra talk, believed that baseball was 90% mental. So did you ever have an opportunity throughout your career what, with uh, whatever organization you were on at the time to uh, see like a sports psychiatrist do some mental exercises before a game? And what was like your mental preparation before you went in to go pitch? Yeah, I think a lot of teams have really adapted the mental side to their game. And you're seeing a lot more teams kind of invest in that. And I think it's, it's certainly a huge aspect. You know, one thing that I really enjoy doing and I still do it in my career now is just visualizing. Um, and when I say that, just spending 10 or 15 minutes kind of visualizing how you think the game's going to go and seeing success in your mind before you go out there and you start playing it, um, I think could be really powerful. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. I've done a lot of mental preparation throughout, throughout my, uh, throughout when I was running cross country and did some, when I was playing basketball and it definitely helps to like be able to visualize it, see it, picture it. And it can sometimes, you know, makes you less overanalyzed. Do you feel like when you just visualize it, it just makes you just go out there and just throw it? Yeah. I think it just gives you, you know, I think like any routine, any good routine is supposed to give you confidence, right? Cause if you know that if you stick with this routine, like I've had success doing this, and I think that's ultimately what you're trying to do is, is go out there and be able to play with the most amount of confidence. So uh, throughout your playing career, uh, what was your favorite stadium to pitch in? And what was the worst ballpark you could, you pitched in, like in your opinion? Hmm. I, you know, favorite stadium, I love Wrigley Field. I think the, the history there, the history there is pretty great. In terms of least favorite stadium, I don't really have a least favorite stadium. I mean, maybe Coors because it's probably the hardest place to pitch. The outfield's huge. The ball flies. But, I mean, in terms of stadium, it's still a nice stadium, and I love the city of Denver. So I'll, I'll say Coors just because it's a tough place to pitch. Definitely, yeah. So, like, besides, like, Eric, would, a, would a, like a ballpark like Minute Maid that's, like, a shorter, does that make it a little bit harder at times to pitch? Like the, or would you, would you say like, like a place like the Coliseum, which has like, it's not a very great ballpark to go see a game in, but there's like so much like foul territory that can get like foul balls that could just be like in play. Yeah. I mean, I think there's different elements to each stadium, but again, you know, just going out there and pitching your game is what you should focus on and not so much the stadium, but there's certainly unique elements that come with, with each ballpark that you're in. Who was who was one one MLB player that you who maybe like an all star that you just had a lot of success against, and then who was an an all MLB all star who you you just who just like who you just like couldn't like quite get the ball by? Well, I'll I'll just answer the second question for you because I know what who that is. Um, so I grew up a Cardinals fan, so grew up watching Albert Pujols. He obviously just signed back with the Cardinals, which is pretty cool. Mm -hmm. and I don't think I ever got Albert out in my career. Um, I've got to know him a little bit and obviously a really great guy, but unfortunately did not have a ton of success pitching against him, but um, has obviously had a, a hall of fame career. Yeah. I think uh, I want to say me and Steven were both KC. We both watched the Royals. So I think Pujols had like his high best batting average was actually against the Royals, I think. Okay. So, so, and I, I, I have a lot of respect for Pujols. He first ballot hall of famer, one of the best to ever do it. Very, it's very, it's great to see him back in a pretty much going to probably finish out his career as a Cardinal, which is probably what it, how it should end. For, yeah, yeah, no, absolutely. Jacob. So what, 
would be your advice for a lot of athletes that are learning to maybe manage money, learning to, okay, I got to set aside money and in, in my finances for the future. You know, what would be a goal that you would tell them and, you know, how would you advise these athletes to implement this? Yeah. Well, I think to kind of two things, Stephen, and it really resonates for everybody, but one, just making sure that you're educated, right? Like if we're all educated on what we're doing, if you guys get educated on podcasting, you become better at it. If we get educated on personal finance, we become better at it. And then two, just really starting at the building blocks and, and knowing what you're spending, right? That's the most basic layer of personal finance. If you can know what you're spending and you can save some money outside of what you're spending, um, then you can start talking about additional strategies. But I think oftentimes in finance in general, people try to overcomplicate it. But if you don't have that base layer foundation, you can't build the house on top of it. So just knowing what you're spending is what I would tell folks. You know, Sam asked you about like a mistake that athletes will sometimes make. Is there a perfect amount for players to save? You know, like Sam mentioned about the paycheck, you know, sometimes their first paycheck is going towards a luxury item, an item that'll make them feel good or something that'll be a status symbol. Sometimes it's, it's just straight to the bank account and an investment, you know, is there a amount that athletes maybe out of high school or out of college should be willing to invest before they start their careers? Yeah, I think it's different for everybody. So I'll give you the best lawyer answer I have. It depends. Right. And there's not, I wouldn't say there's any certain amount, but I think for, for the guys that we work with, it's really understanding. I call like, what is your rich life? And most people think of rich life and they think of like all this stuff, but I think you can either group into two buckets. So you have your material possessions over here and you have your time and your freedom over here. Right. And if you sacrifice some of these material possessions, you might have more time and freedom to do the things that you want to do. And if you sacrifice your time and freedom over here, you might have more material possessions over here. So I think it's just understanding that, hey, the more things I buy, it isn't always going to make me happier. I know even for me personally, you know, I value time and freedom and ability to do what I want to do on a daily basis much more than I value, you know, the nicest, newest car, whatever the situation may be. So I think for each person, it's individual, but I wouldn't say there's any specific number in mind. It's just trying to keep that lifestyle sustainable, where when you get done playing, you can still afford to drive the car you're driving. You can still afford the house you're living in. You can still afford to do everything that you're doing in your life. Mm -hmm. You know, Sam mentioned about the 30 for 30 documentary, about the percentage of players after their playing career is over, they eventually become broke or they're just not financially stable once their career is over. What, how many of the athletes that you work with do you think have an understanding of finances before they even speak to you? Um, I think they all have an understanding of it. I think it's varying levels, certainly in terms of what their understanding is, but you know, it's really our job to help educate and coach the clients that we work with and help them understand the values that we're trying to work towards. Cause it's like anything in life, right? If we can be educated on it, it can help us better engage in the process. You know, if you think about something that you've learned about in your life and you didn't feel like you were educated on what you were learning about, typically you're not going to engage because you're not interested in it. But if you can get educated around it, you can engage in it because you want to do these things you're learning about. So for our listeners, what's the best way for them? Maybe if they're 
an athlete themselves or if they know an athlete that is looking to take that next step with their actual career or maybe they want to learn more about planning for the future financially you know how can they maybe get a hold of you or just learn more about what you do or just learn more about finances in general yeah i think the two best ways are um, i'm pretty active on linkedin and then uh, you can find us on our website at jlswealth.com so any of those two options um, generally you can find ways to contact us pretty easily jacob thanks for thanks so much for taking the time to speak to us and provide examples of what you do now and what you did in the past as a major league baseball player yeah absolutely guys i appreciate you guys having me on all right we appreciate the time jacob and you know have a good rest of your day all right guys have a good one calling me down 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 my foolish heart turns out the sky all that i have is all that you see for those who are listening to our show for the first time, all our past and future episodes are available on Spotify and Apple Podcasts. Also, make sure to follow us on Instagram and Twitter at The Sports Mecca.